Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for the first episode of TV7 Europa Stands. Robert Schuman, a late Prime Minister of France, proclaimed, Europe needs a soul, an ideal, and the political will to serve this ideal. However, years after these words were asserted, Europe remains deeply divided, challenged by those who seek to assert neoliberal ideals as the only way forward versus those aspiring to preserve the continent's historic Christian conservative values. Alongside intra-European disputes, global challenges are seemingly accumulating from great power competition that pivots the attention of those contending eastward and shifting alliances. Is Europe able to contend with these challenges and many more? Joining me to deliver this uh, question are General Klaus Naumann, who is the former Chief of Staff of the German Armed Forces and Chairman of NATO's Military Committee. Thank you for joining us, sir. Pleasure. Also joining us is Dr. Rafael Bardachi who is former Spanish National Security Advisor and CEO of Worldwide Strategy. Thank you for joining us as well. Thank you for having me. On my left here is uh, Colonel Richard Kemp, who is the former British Infantry Commander, uh, a former British Infantry Commander and Head of the International Counterterrorism Intelligence Team at the British Cabinet Office. Thank you for joining us as well. And Mr. Timo Soini, who is Finland's former Minister of Foreign Affairs and Deputy Premier. Thank you for joining us as well. Thank you very much. Before we start with our deliberations today, I would like to uh, initially define our area of coverage, our area of discussion. General, if uh, we may start with you, when we're speaking about Europe, how would you define what we uh, are discussing today? Well, uh, I would not limit Europe to the European Union to start first. I would uh, prefer the geographical definition of a Europe from the Urals to the Atlantic which of course uh, solves two problems, at least by definition. That is, Great Britain still belongs to Europe, although not no longer, unfortunately, to the European Union. And secondly, um, Turkey would have a place in Europe, both geographically and historically. And the third point, if I may mention, this would also mean that the future area of interest due to climate change, the Arctic Ocean, will be a European sea of interest. Indeed. Dr. Barakhi, I see you're shaking your head in acquiescence. Uh, your yeah, I think I agree entirely with General Nauman. A geographical definition is west of the Urals to the Atlantic and the area of interest, no? north and south. Nonetheless, there is also an aesthetic reality. Europe is divided for different interests and aesthetic approaches. One is Russia, one is Central Europeans, the southern tier of Europe. We don't have a common definition of what is Europe in strategic military terms, and that's also one of the problems linked to the lack of a political will, as you mentioned in the introduction. But as far as I can have, we have an idea of what the Europe is nonetheless. No? So um, let's say that 
beyond the European Union, but limited to what is the Western part of Europe. It probably is the focus of Inter when we talk about action, having Russia on the side and Turkey also on another side. Indeed, of course, the alliances are quite shifting these days. Uh, Colonel Kemp, uh, your perspective uh, from across the, the uh, waters? I, I, again, I agree with General Neumann, Neumann, as I almost always do on pretty mo much every issue. But um, <laughs> I think uh, I, I would say happily the UK is no longer politically part of the EU and part of Europe. Um, but it, it, it is, you know, Europe is a, is a geographical entity um, with enormous, obviously, overlapping political and geostrategic and economic uh, commonalities and, and concerns. But I, I don't think you can look at Europe, and I, I, I would hope you will never be able to look at Europe as comparable, for example, to the United States of America, which has far greater unity built into it and has, has had for many, many um, decades, centuries now. Um, and I think that that's something that is unlikely to uh, to occur in the in the in the, in Europe. I think Europe is so divided in terms of its separate historic cultures, its separate interests, both within Europe and around the world. Uh, to make it, you know, m maybe sometime in the far far distant future, we could be talking about a United States of Europe. But I don't personally think that's a, um, a desirable or particularly viable end state at the moment. Mr. Soini. I think that the Council of Europe countries, uh, the broader approach, is, is quite good uh, grip as long as uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan and, and, the, and, and, and the outskirts of uh, Europe from uh, North perspective, Spain, France, Italy, Greek, Greece and so forth. And it's a kind of the concept of uh, democracies. But still also the, the western side of Russia is, is, is part of the Europe. Europe, uh, Ural from uh, from this side, even though it's mentally not European and democratically it's not European, and the rise of the Arctic uh, uh, areas is is a huge challenge. It's going to increase in in importance, great way, and of course UK, very essential part of Europe. Mm. General Nauman, with regard to uh, the the current. Uh, aspects that you also refer to uh, with uh, uh, Russia and, and uh, Turkey and all kind of countries that are not necessarily uh, in the mentality, as uh, Mr. Soini also mentioned, uh, part of uh, a European culture these days. It still is very much geographically part of it and impacts Europe from uh, a strategic level, from a geostrategic level. How do you see this incohesiveness that uh, occurs in, in Europe these days impact the uh, variables that, that uh, secure the way of life of like-minded nations in, in most of European countries? Well, as, as it was mentioned, uh, the majority idea in Europe right now is that we adhere to democracy, to the rule of law, to human respect for human rights. This is no longer uh, entirely shared by all. Definitely not by Russia. Russia, in my view, is an autocracy uh, and uh, is also, although the Western part is European in culture, is, uh, as has at the same time an Asian component which is very alien to European ideas and ideals. 
This is not unimportant since we may be, from my perspective, at the beginning of a systemic conflict between democracies and autocracies. And the biggest autocracy in this world is China. Uh, so we cannot talk about Europe right now without having this in mind. On, and at the same time, we should mention that in Europe, a struggle is going on uh, on the ideas, on the values. Uh, we are no longer as united as we were at the days of uh, Robert Schumann, which you, uh, whom you mentioned. Um, we are struggling. And what is lacking right now, uh, Mrs. von der Leyen just mentioned it in her State of the Union mentioned, what is lacking is the political will to stick together. And this is the moment when we are really challenged, when we are seeing big seismic shifts, most clearly articulated with the disaster of Afghanistan, which we recently witnessed. And we will get to that point and discuss this uh, more thoroughly. Dr. Bardahi? Well, I think uh, uh, beyond the, the difference between democratic uh, nations and, and autocratic uh, powers, we also have a moving political landscape within European countries. Maybe I'm biased because I'm living now under a social communist government in Spain, which is doubtfully respectful of the democratic values compared to what we have in other European countries. But could you could I, I could imagine the same happening in the UK if Mr. Corbyn could have won the election. So I think the, the polarization, the injection of uh, populism from the left and from the right is also changing the dynamics in the political cycles. And we have to be much more sensitive to these changes in different countries because it's not only Russia against the West, or it's not the UK versus the European Union. It's also the moving dynamics within Euro European nations, particularly Spain, Italy, and maybe others in the near future no, as well. Colonel Camp? I think, <coughs> I think it's easy to look at um, or easier perhaps to look at uh, conflict within Europe in a traditional sense of the, you know, the conflicts and the tensions between the different countries in Europe and also the countries outside Europe that we may either be friendly with or opposed to in one way or another. And I agree with the idea of the, you know, the, 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 the real issues we're likely to face in the future of the conflict between democratic countries in Europe and authoritarian or even worse, totalitarian countries outside Europe. But I think the, the potentially as equally as great a challenge and um, po possibly a greater challenge would be um, the internal divisions in, within European countries relating to the massive amount of immigration that's occurred in Europe in recent years and is likely to occur on an even greater level in the future. And I think that, that means not only are our traditional cultures divided one from the other in different parts of Europe, but also internally in each country we're going to see increasing cultural uh, d d d division. Mr. Soini? Yeah, I, I think also that in the future, division between the nations and inside the nations uh, will be a big big topic. Uh, and also the changes in the political landscape can be very rapid and very big by election to election. And then, of course, uh, we are now uh, uh, near the Russian border, 1,300 kilometers Finnish border. It is more with Finland that uh, all the European countries together have border with Russia. So we, we know what, it's, what, what that kind of uh, division is. But, uh, but in the longer run, I think also what, what really worries me is about transatlantic relations between Europe, 
Europe and, and U.S. And now we see with this outcome uh, case uh, uh, a certain kind of symptoms what what, uh, what we can uh, lack if we don't beware and 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 also the five eyes security cooperation between Europe and, and Anglo-Saxon countries is a matter of utmost importance in the future as as well and and then uh, of course uh, China it will be a huge which white K and, and everything else concerning that and then the small countries, uh, Baltic countries and everything else, it's about security. And we all know that we need U.S. presence in Europe in order to be secure. Let's touch uh, a little bit about migration, as uh, Colonel Kemp also mentioned earlier. It does impact uh, some of the social constructs and the ability to handle them. Uh, General Nauman, how do you view the challenge uh, of migration when, on the one hand, uh, Europe is lacking uh, natural demographic growth, uh, which uh, means that uh, people are not necessarily uh, bringing children as uh, the, the economic construct of uh, the respective countries allows uh, uh, intended progress, if you will. But at the same time, many of those who enter Europe are illegal. Uh, illegally entering Europe and then also uh, challenging the economies which they're supposed to a certain degree help construct. So how do you see that as a European challenge uh, from your perspective? I see migration as we have seen it up to now as only the beginning of a bigger problem which is ahead of us. In my view, and I I'm, I'm think that view is shared by the World Bank on rather neutral uh, organization, they predict a migration wave of up to 200 million people from the south of Africa moving north towards the Mediterranean. Uh, should climate change take place in the form as many predict right now, this number may increase. And this is a European danger, since uh, they have no other place to go to than to Europe. Neither the Americans nor uh, anybody, uh, anybody uh, has such a problem. We have to find a solution. What I know for sure, we Germans must not repeat the mistake of 215, which was uh, either, uh, well, not in line with our constitution, <coughs> nor was it in line with the will of the German people. And we have right now, I think, the biggest number of refugees in any European country. I think only Sweden is, in terms of percentages, slightly ahead of us. We do not know a proper solution at this point in time. We know for sure that we will not be able to integrate those people since they are coming from <coughs> different cultural, societal, religious reasons and many of them are not willing to be integrated in a Western-style democracy. So um, we can neither seal our borders, nor can we accept them all. We have to select them. We, as Germans, due to our demographic situation, we will need immigration, but controlled immigration. And to find a solution which is in line with our constitution, with our rights, is a very difficult task which the next German government to be elected on Sunday 
uh, will have to address. Indeed. Dr. Barlachy? Well, I think uh, we have a real strategic and vital problem regarding immigrants, particularly if, if they are illegal. Uh, we have seen the rise of criminality. We have seen the unemployment rates higher than any national in all kind of minorities coming to Europe. Uh, and as an example, Spain is spending 80 billion euros a year in social security to the illegal and legal immigrants, particularly illegal, uh, which is 10 times the defense budget. It is true that Spain budget is the lowest in the European Union, with the exception of Luxembourg. But nonetheless, it's 80 billion, <laughs> uh, which is a, a, a big amount of money, particularly in the times of crisis we are living in. So we need to find a way where, A, we protect the family and increase the birth rate of Western Europe countries, like Hungary has been doing the last years. We need to protect our border. We need to put in place uh, a policy of uh, rejection uh, in, uh, in a very fast way. And we have to put uh, a, a domestic policy of if an illegal immigrant commits any crime, he has to be deported immediately, for instance. And there are things that can be done if the governments are willing to, to, to put in place the, the, the legal reforms that are needed. Indeed. Uh, Colonel Kemp, of course, migration <coughs> was also a big factor in the Brexit. Uh, uh, aspect of, of wanting to free yourselves from the whole uh, uh, insistence uh, at the time of uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel that every b country should receive a certain amount of uh, migrants. Uh, but to what degree is this also a challenge uh, on Britain today and, and also on, on a European scale? Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right that uh, it was a major con contributor to the decision of the British people to leave the EU. But of course, it hasn't done us any good because we're still getting vast numbers of immigrants, particularly illegal immigrants, particularly pouring across the channel. I think there were 3,000 in one day recently coming across the channel from France. I would argue, and unfortunately there are no French people here to contradict me, but I would argue that encouraged to some considerable extent by France and with Britain in, at the moment too weak to prevent it happening. Um, so that's that's the position, I think, as far as Britain's concerned. I agree with Raphael um, on a couple of things. I, again, I always agree with Raphael on most things, but on these issues, I think um, the, the point about um, our birth rates, I mean, it's easy to say we need to get more immigrants in from African countries, the Middle East, etc., to make up for our low birth rates. But no one ever that I ever hear of says... Well, what do we do about the birth rates? In fact, pretty much every government policy in Britain, certainly, and probably other European countries, kind of works against increased birth rates. There's no, there's no support for the family. There's actually active attacks on the traditional family, which leads to a higher birth rate, should lead to a higher birth rate. So I think that's one critical area. And the, and the other thing I agree with Raphael on is the, um, the need to be much more proactive in preventing illegal immigration. We can do it. Australia showed us the way. Australia was extremely effective at dealing with it, but I would question whether European countries, certainly Eastern European countries, have the will or the strength to actually take Australian kind of action to prevent this happening and, and eventually destroying our cultures, which it will. Indeed. Mr. Soini? Yeah. Uh, I was in office uh, when uh, when the, uh, the big wave came, 2015-16, and it was, it was a nightmare in many ways because 
people were prowling uh, around and through the Europe, hundreds of thousands of people, nobody really knew where they would end up to. And at the same time, Russia tested Finland at the two points on our borders. They let people coming in as well as in Norway, where Berger Brende was my colleague then. And they tested Norway and they tested us. And now when there is a crisis in Belarus, they test uh, Lithuanian borders. And this will happen again at the same time if we will get a new shock wave and th this is something we should deal with but this is a problem in European Union level because we are not getting uh, the kind of mechanism how to deal quotas with the coming people and, and, and that is political problem because nobody wants to agree them especially be in, in front of the elections but then, if we don't have any controlled way to come here, then there will be the, 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 the other option. And this will also be a great factor in, the, in every coming elections in different uh, member states, this immigration system. And about the birth rate, I think we should uh, in, uh, make a totally new approach to the families and encourage families in every way uh, to, to, to stick together, to get more children. Of course, we cannot dictate how many children each of us is going to have, but the mentality, the concept of the family life must be promoted. Indeed. But, uh, General? If I may come back to one of your points, I think what we should really discuss in a, in a spirit of achieving unity is migration must never be used as a weapon. As Russia did it yeah. in 2015, as Belarus is doing it right now, as Turkey did it Turkey to some extent, yeah. at least as, as an instrument of blackmail. And in that respect, I think the European Union should come to a common view. If we don't do it, we will weaken ourselves. Indeed, but, but, but there is some opportunities here in order to deter uh, the flow which is in coming to Europe. The, the illegal immigrants are not coming swimming. They come basically on boat. And those boats are essentially belonging to a few NGOs which are even sustained by European Union or national yeah. governments. Funding. If we were treating them as human traffickers, uh, that would be... That will be put in risk the infrastructure of the flow of illegal immigration. Because they are not rescuing people sinking in the Mediterranean. They are arriving to the shore of Africa to put them on board and getting the money because of that action. And I think that, that should be illegal, no? that should be a crime. And uh, if we were able to put this legislation together, I think uh, the, the flow will really uh, stop progressively because they won't, won't have any means. I mean, they, they will be marginal immigration, but not, not in the numbers we are witnessing today. You know. Legal enforcement and, of course, resolve. One of the uh, key issues that, for instance, for Greece, uh, we could see that uh, the moment they were resolved towards Turkey, the whole immigration issue uh, became uh, more of a burden on Turkey, which then worked and uh, is in the process of securing its eastern border uh, amid uh, concerns with regard to Afghanistan. Our next topic, uh, Colonel Kemp, as the former commander of British forces in Afghanistan, the, the alliances that Europe is dealing with are rapidly shifting. One of the triggers to this is, of course, the disengagement from Afghanistan, which have uh, brought a lot of frustration uh, 
uh, in, uh, uh, among European partners of the United States within the construct of NATO uh, with regard to the unilateral disengagement uh, of Washington, which ultimately will bring a lot of challenges uh, on uh, European states and other partners in the region. Uh, care to elaborate on that? I think, I think the withdrawal from Afghanistan, both the fact of the withdrawal and the way it was done, was the, probably the most catastrophic foreign affairs and military situation that has faced the West since probably the Second World War. Um, it was a real disaster in every respect, and I won't elaborate. I could go on for a long time about it, but I don't think I want to bore your listeners and viewers with that. But uh, it has, it's had a devastating effect on NATO and on Europe, as well as on the United States, on the reputation of all of those bodies. And just as an example, Britain, um, Britain, in my opinion, pretended to disagree with the US policy withdrawal. I believe Britain wanted to withdraw in just as much as President Biden wanted to withdraw, but pretended it didn't, pretended it opposed it in order to, um, to deflect some of the political fallout onto the Americans that should have been on the shoulders of the British as well, which we had a major role in that. Um, but I think the, um, you know, the British Foreign, the British Defence Secretary said that he attempted to put together a, a NATO coalition led by Britain, but not including the US, to remain in Afghanistan after the US pulled out. And not one single NATO member said yes to that idea. Now that says a great deal about NATO. What it says to me is that NATO is the United States of America, with a lot of window dressing around it. Uh, and, and, and I think that's the picture it presents to a large part of the world today. And that has got to be repaired because NATO is vitally important to us all, to Europe and to the world. And so I think that, you know, the, the greatest, I believe the greatest negative impact of all was on NATO and, and we must we must repair it. And it will, we'll get in a moment to you, but I'd like, we have a former uh, chairman of uh, NATO's military committee here. Um, your perspective? I agree with Richard Kemp. Um, it was a major failure of NATO, and the failure starts, in my view, uh, at the moment of the Doha agreement between President Trump and the Taliban, which I see as an unconditional surrender of the United States to a non-organization like the Taliban. I haven't heard anything from NATO at this point in time that they said, hey, what are you doing without proper consultation? So the net result is the West, we all lost credibility in doing this Afghan disaster. It could have been uh, avoided. And I think we also should not forget if we differentiate. There were two missions in Afghanistan. One was to defeat the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. That was successfully completed. That was the military part of the mission. Then we had the second mission, nation building. Yeah. And that was a failure right from the outset, since you cannot impose Western-style democracy on a society which is a tribal society, which has only seen a few periods of a central government, and which has never seen something like enlightenment or democracy rule of law and human rights. That was a failure right from the outset, and we should learn from that. But the task which we are confronted with right now is how to restore Western credibility 
at the beginning, I said this earlier, of a probably systemic conflict between democracies and autocracies. And again, I agree with, with Richard. We have no better instrument for the protection of democracies than NATO. So we have to restore the credibility and we have to do what we can do to strengthen the European pillar inside NATO. Indeed, Mr. Sweeney? Yeah, I, I think this is absolutely honest talk and I, sh I, I hope that the European foreign ministers would listen to this and def defense ministers as well what, uh, what the generals have said because uh, uh, also Finland uh, took part. We are not members of the NATO, but we were taking part of ISAF and resolution support and everything else. And militarily, it was successful. We had a one particularly a rescue operation uh, and a good cooperation with UK forces and US forces, and everything functioned very well. But this nation building, this was uh, disastrous. Uh, and if we look uh, from this point onwards, what is going to happen to the girls and women and the civil society, it will haunt us for decades if we are not putting this right in the future. And now, when this has happened, the next steps should be guided how we can restore, in a way, our pride and our decency in, in that matter. And I think this is something in Europe, in America, all us together to, to have a look because if this goes from bad to worse, that, that Afghan is going to collapse a society, society with food shortage and with uh, medical, medical uh, difficulties, then we will very soon have half a million refugees. And what, what to do then? We, are, we don't have weeks, we, we, we should start straight away. Indeed. Uh, Dr. Bardaki, I would like to also expand on this uh, from your perspective on uh, the European engagement as a European Union engagement. The institution has for quite some time tried to promote a European force that would then uh, accommodate to a certain degree NATO, but also serve as its own interests to enforce its own uh, uh, security and uh, related uh, strategic interests. To what degree do you see this as granting uh, the EU tailwind? We hear Ursula von der Leyen in her State of the Union, which General Nauman referred to earlier, uh, being, of course, uh, one of the uh, aspects of her speech promoting this uh, security force. We hear this also more uh, by Josep Borrell, the EU High Representative for Foreign Affairs and uh, Defense Policy. How do you see this, uh, and to what degree does it contradict uh, interests in, in European perspective? Well, I, I don't want to sound cynical, but I have to say that from the very beginning, the European Union was and has been for many decades a pacifist institution. Mm. When we talk about the European Army today, it's basically an extraction force or, or a security guarantee for extraction of forces, not an army for offensive or defensive capabilities, as we understand armed forces traditionally. So. I think we don't. We, we should avoid and overestimate the wording that had been in the narrative lately long about uh, compensating NATO, creating an, an, a European army, building these 5,000 whatever unit is called. Uh, because in the past we weren't able. Uh, we didn't agree at the end. We were 
losing years discussing whether the general commander will be German, British, and the cook French or Italian. So uh, <laughs> un until I see something different culturally, strategically speaking, I think we are stuck in, th in the past. And uh, so I think it's, it's, it's politically and psychologically relevant that when the the Americans made such a fiasco in Afghanistan, and when they also proposed a new alliance, a naval alliance in the Pacific, Europeans said something, because all politicians have to say something uh, or pretend to do something. But I really sincerely am very skeptical that this has any, any, any future as such. You know. Indeed. General? May I just interject one thought, that the European Union is without any doubt uh, one of the most powerful economic instruments in this world. But it is a terribly weak organization in all other aspects of international politics. Even though it manages to keep in line quite some member states when it comes to foreign policy and votings yeah, at the UN and elsewhere. Yeah, but if we look at the world scene as such, the European Union is in terms of, let's say, military capabilities which you need undoubtedly in the future as well so lousily weak that it is not worth to be mentioned at all we have since the beginning of the century european uh, battle groups yeah. none of them was ever employed and that brings me back to the basic mistake which so many politicians make when they speak about the european army it is not of importance to establish the conceptual idea how it is organized. Important is to have the idea of a common European foreign and security policy, how to use instruments in this policy. And that doesn't exist at all. As long as this isn't there, you put the chart before the horse. Indeed. And that's waste of money. This is, of course, as if part of the struggle also between the national yeah, states if, towards if, the If I may that, no, I think uh, the European Union is one of those rare organizations which is less than the sum of the parts, uh, surprisingly, no? And, uh, and, um, <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well, uh, another organization that sprouted just recently is, of course, the AUKUS. Uh, Colonel Kemp, I'd like to hear your perspective on this. Uh, an alliance that, on the one hand, is vital to uh, ensure uh, UK, US, or Western um, capabilities in the South China Sea and elsewhere in the Pacific, but uh, at the other end, it also has uh, created somewhat of a frustration in Europe at large, and France in particular, when the French lost a significant contract of 40 billion euros uh, from Australia. Uh, something that, of course, is uh, quite uh, uh, challenging right now uh, and, and causing additional fracture between France and the UK. H how do you see that? Before I answer that, just on the last topic we, we were on, um, both van der Leyen and uh, Joseph Borrell, the um, b b recent speeches mentioned that they were looking to form a 5,000-strong European force. I mean, what is that? <laughs> what all it, it it just shows kind of talk because five thousand is nothing. A, a, a continent and a you know economy the size of Europe to talk about a, a force of five thousand. I mean, all something like that could be used in is internal security, and I want, I do worry about whether that may be the intention. In if you may say in nineteen ninety nine we were talking about a reaction force of fifty thousand. Yes, indeed, indeed. <laughs> um, but uh, as far as uh, AUKUS is concerned, AUKUS. 
Um, I think it's a really important initiative, uh, and I welcome it very strongly. I think you know the, the Chinese and the Russians, particularly the Chinese, have been in, engaged in yeah. the Cold War against us for forever since they existed. Really, we we thought the Cold War ended, and we stopped fighting it. They didn't. They carried on fighting it. So we do need to fight it. But we, what does it say to the rest of Europe when right. such an alliance is created without consultations, yeah. without even informing okay. at least? per public yeah. statements. Well, we, what, what I'm saying, we do need those alliances. They're very important. And I think um, it's extremely important that our countries work together on it, not just AUKUS, but also France, Germany, etc. Uh, and, and the other major powers in Europe should be part of this. I, I do wonder whether um, actually the decision to form AUKUS was done. Um, we, people say that other countries were surprised. I wonder about that. I wonder whether there was consultation and feeling out their attitudes and their opinions on it. Um, I, I, I know that the question mark has been there over the French submarines for a long time. So the submarine issue is kind of almost on the side in a way. I think the, the, you know, the, the Australians have long been looking for an alternative solution. Um, I think there's a degree of theatre here uh, involving the French, but the French are very good at theatre. I'm sorry to keep having a jab at the French, but there are no other Frenchmen here, so I can. But uh, I, I, do, I do think it's important that we, um, we, we, the other allies are brought into this, and I would hope that will happen over time because we can't, you know, it can't just be three countries standing in an alliance against uh, against something that you know, which poses a problem the size of China. Uh, and I think it's extremely important that we, we, you know, br we bring, and whether that's separate alliances or part of the same thing doesn't really matter too much as long as it, as long as it yeah. works. Mr. Sweeney? Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I think that uh, we lost nearly three and a half years by, by, by uh, prolonged uh, negotiation pro pro process of Brexit. Uh, did we like it or not what happened 2016 there was a twisting of arm of very minor issues for years and years we should have accepted okay that was a vote that happened and then what would happen next but uh, many chances were spoiled in kind of this twisting and and also on a personal level you need trust in a very high political level to to carry on the things Orkus, I would be also surprised that, that if uh, the European uh, leaders didn't know anything, they had to. Uh, otherwise, they are hugely incompetent if they, if they didn't figure out what could be going on. But uh, what, what, uh, what is my perspective as a European Union citizen and so forth, we need cooperation between Europe and UK and US, this transatlantic uh, cable must be restored and, and, and this is a matter of utmost importance because without it we cannot defend Europe and, and, uh, and the, the same token these uh, rapid forces that they haven't been rapid enough to be once in, in, in any place in the world. <laughs> well I, I'd like actually to follow up with you sir if, uh, if I may to what degree as a former foreign minister of an EU member state does the European Union um, involve all of uh, the EU member states in decision making uh, on foreign policy issues and to what degree w uh, do you think at least in this context has uh, the incapacity time and again of uh, the European Union as a bloc uh, to come at specific conclusions with regard to foreign policy mm. maybe altered the way that this AUKUS was created, taking out the European uh, nation states from 
this alliance? I, I think the the topical issues <coughs> come to the uh, table every time when we used to have a chance to discuss uh, an, on a principal level. Then there was Venezuela, then there was Syria, then there was asylum seekers problem. Everything came ad hoc and we never ever got time enough to, to look forward what we should do. It was an ad hoc crisis at every level. Uh, Venezuela or something emerging and, and, and usually some uh, uh, one member state wanted something to, to be tabled or then we had to punish Hungary or Poland or whatever were in, uh, on, the, on the scene and that, that, that is a really lack of uh, cohesion uh, and, and to put the big things forward and then the lower things to the Korreber and some kind of institutions with the bureaucrats to handle. If, if you don't line from the upwards, uh, or from upwards to the bureaucracy, then the bureaucracy is making their own, own petty, petty bourgeois uh, games. And, and if you don't have leadership, and I think this is what we are lacking in Europe, leadership. General Nelman? I, I agree with the two previous speakers. I think the, the problem we see right now, which we have to address, is the lack of consultation. Yeah. Uh, that is an, that's a way which creates nothing but, but mistrust. And uh, yeah. that has to be corrected. But in general terms, and looking at the overall objective of AUKUS, uh, these three nations are right. Yeah. Since the European Union took a decision in December, which I would call as a serious mistake when they agreed on the German driven idea of an uh, industrial economic agreement which gave all advantages to China and none to the Europeans. It was a mistake yeah. and from that the Americans rightly concluded that there is no option to act together with the Europeans as long as they follow this line. The other point which needs to be mentioned, when the French submarine deal was signed a couple of years ago, the Australians, I believe, uh, I think believed in the option of achieving a cooperative arrangement with China. This illusion has gone. And the present prime minister sees that there is a risk of confrontation. And if you have this general line in mind and look at from the Australian perspective of defending the country, you do not need conventional, conventional submarines. You have no longer to do coastal defense, you have to do area defense in the Indo-Pacific region. And that you cannot do with conventional submarines. You need nuclear-powered submarines. From that, from that perspective, I think the Australians took a decision which is absolutely justified from their point of national security. Dr. Barakhi, I'd like also if you may, uh, of course, uh, um, add your thoughts to this uh, subject, yeah, but sure. let's also transition to the great power competition and bring China into the picture. Uh, General Nauman already mentioned yep. the agreement that was made in Germany with regard to uh, certain economic aspects that were counterproductive, to say the least, for uh, EU member states and Europe as a whole. Could you elaborate? Well, I think I agree with what uh, General Nauman said about China. You know? From the 90s, the liberal vision about China was that capitalism of a state will, will bring China to a more amenable way, more cooperative, collaborative with the West. 
and some kind of accommodation in the international order. We know now that that doesn't happen. They are more autocratic, more repressive, and more ambitious, uh, regional and, and, and globally. And that, I think, is behind the shifting views, of strategic views of Australia. Uh, second thing is important uh, to understand why NATO is off guard with this uh, new alliance. The United States strategically has been always an island. Australia and, and the UK are physical islands. And this is a naval arrangement, essentially. NATO has been essentially focused on f terrestrial forces. Uh, and, and that's why, even if they were consulted, I don't know what capability could NATO bring to this kind of containment policy around China in the South China Sea, you know? Uh, could a lot. If, I, if could, I may interject, NATO is a maritime alliance. Well, it's a maritime, or it was theoretically a maritime alliance in the Atlantic, of course, thanks to the American power. Because last time I saw the carrier's forces, the British and the French were reaching an agreement to have one carrier, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, the British, and <laughs> Tuesday and Thursday, the French, and then we came <laughs> off for the families. So uh, I, think, I think in the past we had the, 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 the American force which guaranteed the Atlantic supremacy against the Soviet forces. But sincerely, looking at the kind of uh, blue water capability we have today in Europe, uh, diminishing day by day, even the French cannot conduct carrier operation in the Mediterranean, that's my, my opinion. Uh, but yes, there are other options. But essentially today what they are looking is uh, an operational thing with nuclear submarines, as you mentioned correctly, is for aerial defense and counter and denial access for the, from the Chinese. But also it's important politically because they say, okay, enough of China playing around. And we have this kind of encirclement, which to me reminds me quite a lot of the Truman Doctrine of Containment at the time, no? encircling China as he did with Russia. No? But we, we need to see how much uh, the alliance produced in material terms. No? Colonel Kemp, uh, you I think I think I think the um, uh, you know as, as General Elman says the 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 idea that uh, or it was, may have been Rafael I forget the idea that um, somehow we're going to win the Chinese over to to cooperate to work according to the sort of international norms and and become one of us as it were. I think that was never. A starter, and it's been proved to have been completely misfounded uh, all the way along. So we do need we do need now to to work against China. We do need to accept China as effectively an enemy, not necessarily an enemy that we fight in in open warfare, but that we do everything we can to disengage from um, as as far as we can. And I recognise that that's a huge issue because the, the the interaction, the economic interaction, apart from anything else, is so huge. But we do need to accept that China works against us on a on an industrial basis, both in terms of or in terms of cyber, espionage, propaganda, uh, and grey zone warfare, warfare under the radar horizon. I think that's where we should step up our capabilities. Never mind the five thousand strong European <laughs> intervention force, but let's collectively, as far as we can, work against them. In, in operations under the radar, sabotage operations, subversion operations, exactly as they're doing to us, to counter them, as well, of course, as, as cyber, as much as we possibly can. So I'm, I'm advocating, basically, a military solution to the China problem as part of the solution, but not a conventional military solution. Indeed, with that being said, of course, there are legal 
aspects to this, which uh, while the Chinese, based on uh, multiple articles in its constitution, enable its uh, government to act with regards to uh, the, the rivalry or the competition with uh, Western powers, Specifically here, we see that uh, European nations and various uh, institutional constructs are not necessarily uh, in aligned understanding on this and how to approach this as a whole. Yeah, if I may, uh, Mr. Soinian, then we'll uh, follow up with you, General. Um, how do you see Europe contending with this challenge before it ever hit Europe at this stage, uh, considering the fact, as you mentioned earlier, uh, time and again, Europe deals with the issues at hand uh, after they already struck Europe. This, this uh, whole China issue is, is, is huge. If we, want, well, if we want to have a look uh, how long term their influence is ongoing, it has been started decades ago. And, and step by step uh, with Belt and Road, and when the, the, the concepts like this, they have take uh, economic involvement uh, in, in ports in uh, Portugal, uh, Greece, they have both those, and especially also in the Arctic Sea. F actually, uh, the Western, uh, Western powers has, uh, in a way, been uh, uh, mishandled its uh, capacity. For example, the U.S. has only one icebreaker which is actually functioning in the Arctic areas and there will be submarines also knocking the ice. Uh, there, there, there are not just fish there. And, and China is not the member of the Arctic, uh, Arctic um, Council. Council, but they are hugely active. Uh, in the in the uh, the opening the new pathways with uh, which when ice mm -hmm. is melting and I think and they are madly interested about the Greenland and the and Iceland and and places like that they are going all over the maps uh, the, all over the places and and we we are how would I say they have the t uh, we have the watch but they have the time we we are we are living from election to election. Uh, to to adapt our political uh, to 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 choose our political leaders, they have one party system, who is going onwards and onwards and onwards again, and this is something we don't don't understand how how the time spa span is is different from them. They can wait, but if you are not dealing this well enough, you can be an ancient. Uh, uh, prime minister or, or whatsoever, and they don't have this problem, at, at least at now. Indeed. General Nauman? Well, to underline your point, if you take the simple example of the research stations on the island of Svalbard or Spitsbergen, yeah. the biggest research station there is a Chinese station. Yeah. And uh, it's very interesting, and I would love to see what they're researching. Melting ice <laughs> or temperatures of water, which are very important for the operation of submarines. <laughs> but uh, to, to take the bigger, I should say, the geostrategic point of view, indicates that this 5,000 man uh, reaction force is nothing but a fig leaf which should keep the Europeans calm and give them the assurance if you do this, you have not to do anything more which was a tragic mistake. We, dis we depend, we Europeans, be neutral or not neutral, doesn't matter. We depend on the freedom of the high seas. If yeah. we have, don't have the freedom of the high seas, our economies will falter. Yeah. 
And these, the freedom of the high seas is determined by the free access to the Straits of Malacca at the access of the Indo-Pacific Ocean, by the freedom of seas in the Atlantic, south and north, and in future in the Arctic Ocean where the, uh, the trade routes to China yeah. will be 5,000 miles shorter than they are today. This is a matter of survival. And if the Europeans do not wake up to this challenge and do something about it, then we will, we will ruin our well-being, our welfare, our states, and we will risk that democracy will fail. Alarming indeed, Dr. Yeah. Baraghi. Yeah. Well, I have a little to, to add, because <laughs> I think uh, that's uh, the real danger, challenge, and the correct picture that Europeans we are facing. Whether we are up to that historical task, I don't know. Uh, we have commented on the lack of leadership. We have commented in our cycles of policy nationally based on the division. So we are not equipped today with the best tools to deal with this preposterous challenge. So, but we, we are here just to, to make everyone aware of the, 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 the risk we will facing if we don't act on time. No? Indeed. Well, we are drawing near to the end of the program, and we have about five minutes. We didn't uh, factor in Russia uh, as part of this discussion. Of course, Russia having, uh, uh, or partially discussed this earlier, but uh, we haven't factored its interoperability with China and the fact that it is uh, part of Europe, but not necessarily from a democratic perspective. Uh, Colonel Kemp, I'd like to ask you very briefly, um, if you may, what are the things to look out for in the next month prior to our next episode, which will obviously, uh, in retrospect, deliberate the various developments since then? Well, I think Russia is, um, uh, if, if we're talking specifically about Russia, I think Russia is, um, as, alongside China, Pakistan and Iran, are about to be the, um, the, the major influences in Afghanistan. We've left Afghanistan, we've abandoned it. It's no longer a place we can influence, but it remains a hugely important strategic center um, in, in effectively in the middle of um, you know, the, the borders with China, with um, Iran, with Russia, with countries that we are deeply worried about all the time. And we've abandoned a kind of strategic air base at Bagram, which we could have held on to and we could have continued to use. But it's now those countries I mentioned. Um, Pakistan, I think, in particular, not, not necessarily our greatest concern in geostrategic terms, but probably the greatest influence that will exist on, um, on Afghanistan outside of China. I think China will become the major influential power there. Um, and it will use its influence there both to pillage Afghan resources, but also to do what it can to use Afghanistan to attack the West, as will Russia. Mr. Soin? Yeah, uh, just uh, uh, two days ago, the, the head of the armed forces met Russia and uh, and, and uh, U.S. Uh, uh, commanders met in the in the Finnish soil, and I think it's very important to to have a look what Russia really stands for, and they are mad worried about all kind of color color revolutions and that is, that is quite of the concept what they are using whether it is Afghanistan, Syria, Egypt uh, or Ukraine and that is something to understand the mentality of those. They are not uh, necessarily expansive but they don't want, they don't tolerate uh, for example to go in between Belarus.
Indeed. General Nauman? Well, uh, I think Russia has uh, gained a lot of possibilities to produce nuisance for us, the West. You mentioned Syria, you, which means the control of the Mediterranean. Uh, you mentioned Ukraine, uh, and now, in addition, uh, Central Asia. Yeah. But we should not forget Russia is, uh, seen, uh, I think, strategically relatively weak. It has a relatively well-equipped military. Yeah. It has substantial okay. nuclear forces. But it has nothing to export but raw materials and weapons. Yeah. And Russia is deeply afraid of democracy, which they regard as a danger. So I think we have opportunities to find ways to cooperate with Russia without giving in to Russia. Yeah. Dr. Baradaki, we're less than okay, a very briefly, I think Russia is becoming France in the sense that their diplomacy, um, they are punching over its weights. Russia has a lot of internal problems and uh, with China, demographically, economically. So um, even if Putin is trying to be more aggressive in some parts, I think they, they, have, they have many limitations that will, will really affect their ability to stand in the world in the, ne in the, in the, in the few yeah. months and coming no, in the next years. So it's not a great power anymore, and it's going to be decaying slowly from here to 20 years from now. No? Uh, but nonetheless, it's important, as France is, is important today as well. <laughs> and they have still nuclear weapons. Yeah. yeah. Uh, with that being said, of course, we didn't <laughs> touch on, on Turkey, which is also in a crossroads of its own, uh, thinking about uh, its uh, membership, if you will, not on, on the physical uh, sense, but uh, in uh, the uh, idea of, of the essence of being uh, a member of NATO. What is the added value there? We hear the uh, President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan speaking about on uh, multiple occasions. But uh, with that said, we will have to reserve this for the next program as we have <laughs> run out of time. So I'd like to thank General Nauman, Dr. Barrahi, Colonel Kemp, and Mr. Soini for being part of today's program. And I'm looking forward to uh, having you next month as well. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media.